You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my lovely other half, Dr. Jess. I'm feeling lovely. You're looking lovely. Just mm. throwing the compliments at you this morning. Yeah, well, it's a... It's a weird time of the year because for most entrepreneurs and students and parents, this feels like a new year. Yeah, I usually struggle leading up to the day after Labor Day because it reminds me of going back to school, which was a long time ago, uh, and all of these sorts of fields right now. Yeah, and uh, for folks who go back to school at a different time of year, in, in Toronto, we've always gone back to school the day after Labor Day. It's always been the way it is. And of course, this year is different because some kids aren't going back to school. Some are doing a blended hybrid type learning. Some have been postponed until next week because I guess the governments and the school boards couldn't agree on what would be safe for staff and students. And I would say about 50-50%. I'd say 50-50 in terms of our friends, um, in terms of sending their kids back to school or keeping their kids at home. Yeah, and I mean, maybe people are going to think I'm a lot younger than I am now that I said that I'm nostalgic about going to school. No, no one thinks you're young. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Uh, Before we dive in today, I want to say a big thank you to Provacare, which is a natural way to restore the healthy bacteria and normal pH level required for a balanced vaginal ecosystem. And so Provacare has been clinically proven to treat and prevent recurring yeast and bacterial infections and you can check them out online provacare.ca and you can I believe you can find them on Amazon as well. Now today we're going to be talking a whole lot of things. We're going to be talking sex work, online stripping, which to me feels very intimidating, but I'm interested to learn more, the porn and industry, STI testing, maybe some strap-on sex. How about that? Sounds like a whole lot of interesting stuff and yes, Online stripping sounds like something that I would not be very good at. Would you strip for me? I would, but I'm super self-conscious. I feel like, I feel ridiculous. Listen, I can dance to the bass, not the treble, but. (laughs) He just wants to tell everyone he has rhythm. Yeah, but it still feels awkward to me to perform like that. Tell me the truth. Would you be more comfortable stripping for me or stripping for strangers? Probably for you, because in addition to the discomfort with not knowing how to strip or perform, there would also be the judgment factor of somebody who also doesn't know you. So you might, in in addition to like, how am I dancing or how am I performing? You would be like, what do they think of how I look? At least with you, I know that you already know how I look. So hopefully I've got that check in advance. I'm the opposite. I asked that question because I would definitely be more comfortable stripping for strangers than you or people. Really? Yeah, because I think with you, I would just feel so silly because we we would have maybe just moved from a conversation about business or taxes or something else. So I I feel as though um, maybe because stripping appeals to me, it would offer a sense of escape from the reality. But I think we need some expert help on this. Definitely. Joining us today is sex worker, educator, and activist, Andre Shakti. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to chat with you. Now, you do so many different things. And in light of the situation, you are now doing virtual 
stripping and you have you have this a, san- a club called Sanctuary the Club is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And so can you tell us about that what is virtual stripping? I mean, I imagine it's more than just a webcam and taking off your clothes. I'm sure it's, you know, more curated and more experiential than that. <laughs> well, the one that I run, we certainly try. So, this strip club, I have a background in a lot of different varied niches of the sex industry and during my history, I definitely dabbled in webcamming. I dabbled, um, you know, I worked in porn for a while and I've been a stripper for the past 12 years of my life. It is like the bread and butter of my sex work. And when March hit, you know, so did COVID and all of our brick and mortar clubs started closing. And also the government decided to discriminate against sex workers in terms of leaving them out of receiving, you know, small business uh, loans. And so a lot of sex workers were really, really hurting, you know, not only did our clubs close and we were being discriminated against the government financially, but also, you know, people weren't exactly jumping up and down to try and see sex workers with all of like the fear and the, you know, the, um, apprehension around contracting COVID. So all of a sudden most sex workers lost pretty much all of their income. And, you know, honestly, in terms of privilege, the workers that, prior to COVID had the largest internet followings, definitely were able to rebound the fastest because they were able to make the transition from in-person work to digital work fairly easily already having like a pre-existing fan base there. Right. So fortunately I had a significant enough fan base just for my porn and my digital work in the past that I was like, okay, hold on. Obviously I need to completely reroute, um, you know, my business plan, uh, moving forward. And I need to discover and or create a new viable source of income for myself. And it's going to have to be digitally. And then I thought, well, I'm not the only person hurting here. I have a a large community, um, of sex workers in my life. And I'm like, I'm not the only person hurting here. And, you know, the way that privilege obviously works is that the people who are more marginalized end up hurting the most, the folks that are black and brown and trans and queer and disabled. And so I was like, well, screw it. I don't want to just do the Andre show, uh, you know, once or twice <laughs> a week for people that just happen to be into me and my work. I want to try and curate something that helps my community because I'm I'm also queer and, um, you know, I have a large community in that subset genre as well. And so I started Sanctuary Virtual Strip Club and we have been going live since the beginning of March. We go live every Thursday and Saturdays. Um, And then we also just added a new Sanctuary Noir show, which is a later night show uh, twice a month on Fridays featuring an entirely um, black indigenous POC cast and all the proceeds go towards a different nonprofit every month. And, you know, there are a few other virtual shows online. Like, we're not trying to compete with anybody. We want everybody to get their bag, right? Um, But everybody kind of has their own style. And I think it's very easy to create a situation where, you know, you load up an online cast and, you know, you start recording and it's like a three-minute performance from one person. Then it's like, okay, great, that's done. Let's go on to a three-minute performance from someone else. And then a three-minute performance from someone else. And there's definitely something to be said for that, but that feels always felt more like a more like a burlesque or a drag show or a cabaret show. And again, less like that authentic uh, strip club experience. So we do something a little different. We work off of engagement and we definitely have kind of a 
a venue type show combined with a webcamming experience where each week you get a rotating cast of dancers and each dancer gets a 15 minute set per hour to basically do whatever they want. They talk to the audience, they welcome them in, they hustle different services for tips. Um, we do like POV lap dances. You can buy a shots, you can request your favorite music, that kind of thing. And they dance. And we what's found a, what's a POV? What does that mean? POV. <laughs> POV. So that's point of view. So if you've ever mm-hmm. watched pornography and you as I have. The- Except have you? It's shocking to me. I was thinking more to the broader public. Now, assuming you had not watched pornography, but thank you for confirming. So, if you watch pornography hypothetically, um, and the porn that you're watching um, is an exclusive shot of the other individual as though they're doing things to you, that Ah. is a point of view. Um, style of filming. So we see that a lot in porn. Um, Lots of POV blowjob scenes, POV, Uh you know, threesome scenes. And so POV lap dances is just like that. It's basically we get all up and close and personal in the camera and make you feel like you are receiving a lap dance at a club just with no risk of, uh, you know, transferring uh, COVID. So um, I love it. You know, it's definitely for the kind of dancer who loves stripping, who loves the people element of stripping and the conversation and the connection, because that's what people really want right now. And that's really all that people have ever wanted from sex work, right? Like the sex has just been the icing on top of the cake, the excuse to go consume that kind of content or to go patronize that kind of person. I mean, especially now with the pandemic, people are looking for connection more than ever. And I have a question about that connection online, because Mm -hmm. we've been hearing a lot about, you know, Zoom exhaustion and how intimate it actually is to be meeting online and how for many of us, it feels more emotionally draining because of that increased level of intimacy. So I'm sure people would assume that, oh, it's not as intimate because there's no physical touch. You know, you're not sitting on their lap. You're not grinding along alongside of them. But I'm curious if uh, if you have found or if any of the other dancers have found that that uh, they feel more of an intimate connection online. And, and how do you cultivate that intimacy from afar? Absolutely. That's a really good question. So I think it has a lot to do with, you know, getting personal with people. You know, at this point with Sanctuary, we have a really solid group of like loyal attendees who come in every week or every other week. And over the past six months, we've gotten to know them really well. You know, we're looking in on their video screens and we're like, oh, is that a new couch? Or like, you know, oh, like oh, you just got a puppy that's so great. Why don't you bring it over to the camera and show us? And so it's like not only are the attendees and the audience members stepping into a little part of our personal life, you know, because all of us are recording from our own private homes and studios, you know, so we're kind of immediately letting a barrier down that we wouldn't otherwise in a stereotypical strip club 
um, scene mm-hmm. because you don't usually show people pictures of the interior of your house, you know, when you're trying to hustle a dance. You don't really, you know, have your partner like running through the background and be like talking about how helpful they are, like setting up your sound and everything. Um, you know, you don't get really any personal details about like our relationships and whatnot while again we're trying to hustle money at the club. So not only do they get kind of a, an insider look at our home life and our more intimate life, but we get the same of them. And so we mm-hmm. know, you know, when our favorite customers' birthdays are coming up, we hear about, you know, when we ask our customers how their day was, you know, they'll be honest with us. They'll be like, you know, I had a rough day. I, you know, I, I, I can't figure out this virtual interface for work or I'm a teacher and I have to go back to work, you know, and I'm really scared about it. And I think that, you know, this extended reach into people's personal lives, as well as the fact that, again, we're talking about a period of time where our population as a whole in our country has potentially never been more vulnerable um, together, you know, in a united way like this, that it really does create the perfect breeding ground for a very unique kind of intimacy. Um, so again, I think it really, it it requires kind of a relaxing of your own boundaries, um, especially if doing this kind of sex work, you were someone who previously, you know, maybe put a lot of work into the separation between who you mm-hmm. are outside of work and who you are inside the confines of your work. And then it also requires like a genuine interest and care for other people and how they're doing in their lives outside of how much money are they giving you, you know, when they tell you this. So I think that, you know, again, the audience and the dancers that we've cultivated, that we've brought in have really done a wonderful job of, of creating that. I love that. And I love that you're talking about the intimacy and the connection and getting to know one another, because I do think people um, oftentimes just assume that sex work is an exchange of money, sex, money, sex, but it is so much more in terms of the way you cultivate these relationships. And when you talk about, you know, the genuine experience, you also mentioned that you love stripping. And what I would love for you for you to kind of just share that love with us, explain to us what you love about this experience. Well, what I really love about the experience of stripping, I mean, it's definitely multi-tiered. I walked into my first strip club at age 18 after, you know, just a few weeks in Baltimore City, like accepting my undergrad uh, first semester. And, you know, there were a lot of things. Um, I was coming out as queer at the time. I'm right around age like 18, 19. And um, I was discovering all kinds of feelings um, and, <laughs> you know, inclinations during that time. And so I'm not going to lie and say that being around a bunch of beautiful women did not <laughs> attract, <laughs> did not attract me to this industry in any way. Um, and also I grew up dancing, um, obviously not exotic dancing, but I grew up um, doing hip hop and modern and uh, Latin ballroom. And so I've always had like a really good sense of rhythm. Um, I've always been a really good dancer. And then when I was younger, uh, my mother was was very athletic. She coached just about every sport and forced my sister and I into it and was on like the Olympic swimming or the, the one of the Olympic swimming teams before she had an accident and turned into a triathlete and just was going, going, going with fitness. And I really took to it. I've always been a very 
physically mobile person who enjoys moving their body and breaking a sweat. And I always thought when I was younger, even when I didn't really know what I wanted to do yet, I was like, how cool would it be to get paid to exercise? (laughs) (laughs) That would be so neat because I love exercising, but it just takes out so much time in my day. How cool would it be to have an extra financial motivation, right? Not really even thinking about sex work at the time. And so, you know, when I became, again, old enough and uh, the opportunity presented itself, I was like, great, I get to get paid to exercise, be around beautiful women, meet a bunch of people and strike up conversations with folks that I probably never would have outside of like the bubble of the social network that I already kept. And I love music and I love to dance and I love to move my body to music. So this sounds like a wonderful idea. And... 12 years later, it still is. I always say that I am going to keep stripping until either my body finally gives out and or until people don't want to throw money at me anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I I love that. Now, you talk about sex work um, and the vulnerability that so many sex workers have been facing over, you know, the recent months. And, of course, already a vulnerable population because of our erotophobia and all the other nonsense that prioritizes some jobs over others. So I have to ask you mm-hmm. about Bella Thorne mm. and <laughs> OnlyFans. Yeah, so maybe we can give people a bit of background, and I don't know if I'll do it justice. You can add to it. But so oh, Bella Thorne is a an actress, model, singer, director, according to Wikipedia, and um, certainly not a sex worker, but she decided to start an OnlyFans account. She drew in a ton of money, I guess more than anybody ever has before, and it it uh, led to OnlyFans changing their policies to um, not favor uh, the folks who already work on OnlyFans. So maybe you can do a better job explaining that than me, and we can even cut my part out. <laughs> Sure. So I actually am one of the rare sex workers, I think at this time, who does not have an OnlyFans. Um, I am actually in the process of starting one, particularly specifically for non-explicit sex education, because I haven't really seen anybody use that platform for that yet. But Great. Um, I And also, I'm not a big celebrity person. So I do know of the Bella Thorne um, you know, incident. And I guess what I will say about it is that you know, in all these post-incident interviews um, where obviously she was getting a ton of flack from sex workers, um, she, you know, claimed that she claimed that she was on the platform to give it more, quote, mainstream visibility, um, kind of justifying it by saying, no, no, I wasn't trying to ruin sex workers' income. I was actually trying to further legitimize sex work um, by being on there and showing a mainstream person and a mainstream face um, doing this kind of work to more normalize it to the general population. And that sounds all well and good until you realize that Bella Thorne never had an explicit OnlyFans. She never actually was fully nude or showed any explicit content. She made, and I don't even know what the what the number was. Um, it's up to $2 million a yeah, week $2 million later is what I saw. 
Uh, yeah, which is absurd. And of course, she is the epitome of physical privilege, right? I don't know this woman intimately, but she is white. She is thin. She is stereotypically attractive, cisgender, um, heterosexual, as far as I know, in that she hasn't made any public statements, you know, vowing her queerness. Um, and already was rich, you know, from her work that she was doing previously as a celebrity. And so number one, inserting yourself as a privileged individual into the sex industry that already prioritizes people of that same kind of privilege, people who are stereotypically attractive, white, thin, young, female, et cetera. Um, that isn't radical or revolutionary in any way. <laughs> and <laughs> she seems to think that it was, she seems to think that her presence being there was radical, was revolutionary, had the potential to be for the sex worker community. And again, her body type is the kind that makes the most money on those sites and already um, takes money away from the more marginalized individuals who are uh, using that site for work um, at the same time. So yeah, adding another supermodel looking woman um, to the mix was not in any way going to be received as something that you know was radical. Um, and then on, on top of that, it ends up costing the sex workers who are on this platform money because they changed their policies because she made so much money to mm -hmm. limit the money that performers can make on that platform. So in, exactly. in the end, she made two million bucks and counting. And the folks who are already on this platform, who depend on this platform, who this is the work that they do. This isn't something some throwaway like, oh, I'm not working. I'm not filming. Maybe I'll go take my clothes off. You know, I mean, we see those sex worker negative and disparaging jokes all the time. I hate when I see people say that like, oh, I should have. Mm -hmm. I may I may just have to be a stripper. I'm like, you think you'd be good at stripping? Because I can tell you, I know I would not be good at stripping. That looks like hard work. Like that is a that is a specific skill. I'm not saying you can't learn. Of course, people can learn. But this joke that like, oh, hey, you know, I might as well just be a stripper. Like it's this super simple thing to do where you make a ton of money and live this easy life and buy six houses in Miami. Um, I mean, I'm sure you can explain it better than I can that that's certainly not the case. Oh, absolutely. And I think something that really bothered a lot of sex workers was when the pandemic hit, you know, f uh, right around the beginning of March or so. And all of a sudden, you know, on social media, we all started to see the people in our networks who were not sex workers, who in the past we know had denounced sex work or, um, or called it oppressive or, um, you know, we're involved in like religious, like right wing anti trafficking groups that also, you know, are of the opinion that there can be no consensual sex work. Um, we saw all these people all of a sudden change their tunes, you know, people who experienced job loss and um, and income restrictions due to the pandemic outside of the sex industry, all of a sudden they're like, I'm making an OnlyFans. I'm on OnlyFans now. Look at me. I love sex work. I love being a sex worker. Let's do this. And that was really hard for a lot of us. I mean, again, I was not previously on OnlyFans, but I know dozens and dozens of workers who who work hard i mean wake up at 9 a.m shoot content all day professionally edit that content invest in expensive equipment and sets to really sell the professionalism of that content that like you said this was their entire living and not only did the market get flooded with oversaturation at the beginning of the pandemic but it was just 
it was almost insulting to just watch these people who, again, you know, previously were the kind of folks that, that I call, I call the, the middle-aged mom pollers, which are the ones that go to poll class with me. And then as they're leaving, they're all like, I mean, that was fun, but like, I never do that for a living, <laughs> you know? And, and all of a sudden turn into, into, oh, like sex workers, my community. And, and I'm not going to lie. I am not a perfect and virtuous person all the time. I have truly enjoyed seeing a lot of them fail. <laughs> <laughs> I really have because you come back to their profile a month or two months later and it's like, oh, I really need help. How do I sell my content? This is so much harder than I thought. How do I market myself? How do I brand myself? Like, how are all these people making money? And it's like, well, we did a lot of intentionality and research before we got into this. And this isn't, like you said, just some kind of hobby or or passion project. This is This is a labor industry. And you know, discrimination against sex work in our culture really does two things. It convinces people that either we are victims or criminals, and it also seeks, in an industry that is predominantly legal, it seeks to delegitimize our industry as a legitimate labor industry in the way that only the sex industry has been demonized. And that works against people taking what we do seriously. That works against people thinking that, you know, they need specific skill sets um, to enter this industry, just like you need specific skill sets to enter any labor industry, right, that are relevant to that industry. And so, you know, people are finding it out. Um, I always tell folks when they start out with sex work, I'm like, give it a year, <laughs> give it a year. And after a year, you will know whether or not this is something that you want to do, you know, and that you're good at. And I think also a lot of folks see sex work as a last resort when it comes to employment. And so everyone's like, you know, oh, well, I don't know what I'd do if I lost my job. I guess I'd have to like get out there on the corner. Right. And it's like, it's not, it's not a last resort. It's something, you know, for a lot of people, it, it is something that they are doing. Like, for example, when you're talking about survival work, it is something they're doing as a means to an end, right? They didn't have the privilege to sit back and choose this from a litany of options, usually due to marginalization. But for a lot of people, it, it was a career decision. And, when you treat sex work like a last resort, of course, if you try it and you then fail, what are you going to think about yourself? If you thought this is the, of course, I'd always be able to fall back on this and then you try it and then you're not succeeding at it. And I think that really messes with some people who find themselves, you know, psychologically and emotionally who find themselves in that position now. I never, I not, never thought about it that way, and it, you know, it's a reminder that sex work is work. And Labor Day just passed, and um, you know, I saw all of the posts going around Instagram and Facebook, and and I think we all need that reminder. Now, I, I want to switch gears a little because you you've also worked in the porn industry, and you've talked uh, a little bit about what we can learn from the porn industry in terms of. STI testing, and uh, I, I don't know exactly how it works, but I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing from you on how how it's regulated in the industry as yet another reminder 
and layer that this is this is work. This is professionalism. This requires all these different layers of investment to make it work. So yeah, I'd love to hear your story of either how you got into porn or um, even what it what it's like to work in porn and what what the regulations are for workers. Absolutely. So in the porn industry, you know, kind of piggybacking off of this like discrimination against sex workers and you know what we are taught to believe about sex workers, you know, as we're socialized in our country. Um, a lot of us are taught again that we're victims or criminals and that um you know, there are certain traits that come with a sex worker, like they're dirty, they're disease ridden because of all of the sex that they have um, with so many different people. They're dangerous sexual partners. Um, you know, they're disgusting. They're filthy, like that kind of that, that, that feeling of grime, you know, and with that comes an, ass- an assumption that with our sex work that a all of us as sex workers are performing direct full contact explicit sexual services which we're not um you know there are people peddling panties out there and there are people doing phone sex and people doing all kinds of sex work that limit their actual you know uh, engagement with other folks bodies but we also assume that they must not be being safe about it and You know, in fact, in the porn industry, we've even had legislation thrown against us um, to try and mandate condom use in porn. I mean, I'm I'm sure you're familiar with Proposition 60 that attempted to get passed back in 2016 with the 2016 Mm -hmm. election. And basically what that was, was this singular individual, um, I think his name is Michael Weinberg. I haven't even thought about him in a while, but he runs the AIDS Health Foundation. And he um, came out and said, you know, kind of apropos of nothing, was like, you know, these poor porn performers, these poor porn performers, you know, we see that they have like syphilis in the community every two or three years is a syphilis outbreak. And every three or four years, there's an HIV positive test in the sex industry, in the porn industry. And we really need to protect these poor workers. So we need to mandate condom use in porn and basically implement OSHA, like public kitchen standards on porn sets. And while this on its face value, if you know nothing about the sex industry, this seems like an altruistic move, right? This is like, oh, okay. Like he's not saying to do away with sex work. He's saying let's protect them and keep them safe. So in the very progressive bubble that is like both, you know, parts of Northern and Southern California, an average layperson was like, cool, I'm down with sex workers. Let's do that. Right. But what it, what it actually was, was a thinly veiled attempt to move the porn industry out of the state of California. Um, uh-huh. Because what it would do is it would actually implement extremely heavy fines. It would make all porn companies financially responsible for all of their performers' tests, which, you know, honestly, I don't think is such a bad thing at all, but a lot of these companies are small and can't financially afford to do that. And it would also implement these crazy fines where if they were found in violation of these extremely stringent and frankly often ridiculous regulations, they would be fined so heavily that they would go out of business and they would have to move out of the state of California in order to sustain operations. And even though we want one proposition 60 and it was not passed that started kind of the transfer of porn the porn industry from california where it was predominantly centered as well as like southern florida into las vegas and the vegas area because 
it was more liberal and believe it or not, and also the cost of operations were lower. And so now actually, we... I, I'm just going to interject and say for oh, folks yeah. who know that I that I hosted the show Swing on Playboy TV, uh, people always ask where we shot. And for the first few seasons, we shot in the Hollywood Hills. And post, I guess it was was it 2016, mm. we or around that time, we actually moved to Vegas for the last two seasons of shooting uh, for this reason. And then, of oh, course, wow. as you said. Yeah, the cost of shooting was lower. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, just for for folks who are fans of Playboy TV Swing, that's why you'll see that shift from the Hollywood Hills to the tiny, tiny, itty-bitty Las Vegas Hills. (laughs) Oh my goodness, that's so interesting. I'm sorry that impacted you at that time. It was probably a huge inconvenience for you all. But yeah, so, you know, moral of the story is, is that all of these, you know, great endeavors and precautions have been, you know, thrown at the community by people who are outside of it, who don't take the time to actually consult with the people who are doing this work, who are on the ground, directing and producing and performing um, to ask, you know, what does the sex industry really need? What does the porn industry really need? How can we help advocate for you? It's a lot of assumptiveness about what needs advocating and what needs changing from the outside. And what most people don't know about the sex industry is that, or the porn industry specifically, is that for the past, oh my goodness, I want to say 15 years, it's been at least 10. Um, For the past, I will say 10 to 15 years, do not, do not quote me on this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The porn industry has actually had its own internal uh, regulatory testing system called talent testing. And talent testing basically means that you, in order to remain active in the porn industry as a performer who's available to be booked for for shoots, you have to um, upload every 14 days a a neutral um, or non-reactive set of STD tests. And so there are pre-verified locations for folks to get tested. So you get booked for a shoot, they say, okay, you're going to shoot, you know, a week from now, you're going to shoot a week and a half from now. So you immediately get a um, registration with a local testing facility that's pre-approved. You go, you have to show your identification to verify that it's you, and they do a full STD panel on you. Um, and that STD panel comes back much faster than your average doctor gets yours back to you. It comes back in the next 24 to 48 hours. And if you flag as reactive on anything on your test, immediately all of that is uploaded to a virtual database that all directors and producers have access to. So now when they go into their individual performers' profiles pre-shoot to make sure everybody is good to shoot, if you flagged for an STD, they will pull that shoot immediately and they will find a replacement who currently has a safe test that's active in the system. And so because of this, This is why we only ever hear of people in the porn industry, an industry that consists of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, just here in the United States alone. We only hear about an outbreak of, you know, oh, three people tested positive for syphilis or three people tested positive for HIV every like two to four years, where if you take the statistics from the general population outside of people who are getting tested every 14 days who are so 
you know, hyper aware of their own physical health and well-being who are um, oftentimes way more educated about risk assessment and harm reduction when it comes to STDs than the average layperson. If you compare those statistics to how often the average American contracts an STD or what the average American um, utilizes in their everyday lives in terms of sexual safety precautions and practices, it's not even worth comparing to. Right. So I always tell people, especially, you know, when they're like, oh, Andre, I want to hire a private professional. I want to hire an escort. I want to hire a a dominatrix for the first time, but I'm concerned about sexual safety. I'm like, what you have to understand is as sex workers, we are so motivated to keep ourselves safe because if we don't, not only could that bleed back in our personal life and affect those that we love, but it also means we can't work. And we're very motivated to make sure that our bodies are always in tip-top condition and able to work. So you are almost every time going to encounter an individual who is so concerned with sexual health and safety. And, you know, I mean, that makes us superheroes, in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Mm -hmm. Hardworking superheroes. Now, before I let you go, because we ran out of time, I wonder if I can just ask you a few kind of quick round questions on another area of your expertise, because you're also an educator. So I know you that you you do sex work, you're a dominatrix, you're a writer, you're an activist, uh, you have your own column uh, on it's a weekly non-monogamy advice column at iampoly.net called I am polyamorous and so can you. And you're a strap-on sex expert. So I I have to let you go. So I'm wondering if I can get some quick ones from you. Um, First and foremost, what do people get wrong about strap-on sex? Hmm. I think the first and foremost, the thing that people get wrong about strap-on sex is that it's not for them. I think when we, when we look up strap-on sex, and by look up, of course, I mean our favorite topic for today, pornography, right? When we see depictions of strap-on sex, you know, typically we see them in two different contexts, either like hardcore, like lesbian pornography, or in a very like highly protocoled and fetishized manner of a dominatrix, you know, taking a male client, typically like down to size, right? And... A lot of people who have been socialized male in our country, you know, they grew up with a very, um, you know, frankly, homophobic way of looking at their own bodies and what on their bodies and what within them is deserving of pleasure. And, you know, when we talk about strap-on sex, strap-on sex is kind of the umbrella, but pegging is a specific kind of strap-on sex that is um, exhibited between two or multiple individuals who identify as heterosexual, who are in a heterosexual um, relationship or coupling. And so I think a lot of times, you know, people in the LGBTQ community, we see strap-on sex as being very accessible. People who do professional domination work see strap-on sex as being very accessible because it's something that's in demand for their particular dynamic. But, you know, the average layperson, particularly the average, you know, cisgender woman um, or the average cisgender man, oftentimes doesn't see that as being accessible because, you know, either for the women, they were socialized to be submissive in their lives. You know, as a woman from a gendered perspective, they were socialized you're always going to be the submissive um, receiving party when it comes to sex. And for men, they're oftentimes told, hey, listen, 
that that butt that is an exit only that is a Mm -hmm. that is something that is made for functionality and you do not deserve to pleasure it and if you do desire that that makes you um alternative that makes you queer and not in the current reclaimed definition of that word but in the slur Mm -hmm. definition of that word and that um, immediately takes into question your masculinity. And even here in 2020, one of the worst things that you can do still to this day socially is to call a masculine or male-identified person's masculinity into question. And so I just wish, and through my education and teaching, I want to make sure everybody knows that regardless of what your gender or your sexual orientation is or your age or your relationship dynamic, that strap-on sex is absolutely and can be accessible to you. And I wonder if when people think of strap-on sex, they always think of strapping something phallic um, to their groin when there Mm -hmm. are all these other – like sometimes I think about just the practicality, you know, like take sex out of the bedroom, do it in the shower, like the the small changes. And I'm thinking with strap-on sex, if we don't make it about the groin – um, would more people be more comfortable? Like you can wear a strap on on your thigh, on other parts of your body. And I wonder if that's is could that be like a positive gateway to strap on sex, where it's maybe something smaller in a place that doesn't feel as, I guess, subversive to whatever they've been prescribed in terms of gender identity. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. People can definitely also experiment, you know, especially if we're talking about a more heteronormative or heterosexual couple. Um, People can definitely experiment with fingers first. I actually always tell folks, regardless of what kind of sex they're having, if they're going to incorporate sex toys, that you should explore your and your partner's body with your own fingertips, with your own mouth, before you go inserting toys into it. That way, you can feel, you know, what does the inside of my partner's body feel like? Where are all the curves? Where are all the angles? You know, where are they sensitive? And that's also, of course, going to better inform when you decide to buy toys for that partner or yourself, you know, what kinds of toys you look at. But, you know, explore that, explore that hole first, you know, explore those holes first with your fingers, with your mouth, Um, use toys that you hold in your hand. You know, maybe use a, a dildo or a butt plug, but, you know, be penetrating your partner with the toy in your hand first, you know, and see see how that feels just to use a toy on your partner um, while you're holding it in something that isn't as sexualized to you as, you know, again, being attached to your groin. And then when it comes to strapping things on your body, like you said, why stop at the groin? There are thigh harnesses where you can put a toy on your thigh. There are shoe harnesses. There are my favorite. hand harnesses. Oh my goodness. Tell me about it. Um, I mean, if I, and if I can get another pair of shoes out of it, I'm all about it. Right? All and about so especially it. if you're into kink and fetish um, and or you have a partner who – really enjoys maybe you have like a cuckolding thing with your partner or you're playing with um, themes of chastity where you're you know you're restricting them um, from getting off but they have to provide pleasure to you I mean just lay your partner down strap as many toys on them as possible get a mouth gag Get a strap-on dildo mouth gag where your partner is gagged and there's a toy, you know, extending from their mouth and just fuck yourself all over their whole body and leave their genitals completely alone. 
right? Like that is as a dominatrix, like that's like I, my brain just starts thinking of all the creatively sadistic things that you can do with multiple harnesses. But I mean, harnesses can be great for multiple partner play. You can put two thigh harnesses on and have one person on each thigh. You know, it's really, it can go way above and beyond just, I'm going to strap this toy to my groin and then give you pleasure as a result of it. I love it. And there, there's a brand that I love. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. They might be Canadian because we're, we're mm. Canadian up here. Uh, <laughs> Unicorn Collaborators. They make some really beautiful harnesses for various parts of the body. And many of them can be worn as as jewelry, I think. I think I remember seeing mm. one that you, you kind of wore it as a either a choker or there was maybe one that went around your wrist. But it also doubled as as a harness for a dildo and they were called unicorn collaborators so I'll just shout them out I know they're on Etsy um, so people can take a look and 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 I, I'm glad we're talking about this I wish we had more time for strap-on sex because I do think there are so many myths around size about what you must do and it, it does oftentimes come back to this heteronormative notion of what sex might look like I know that you know most people listening out there are, are way beyond that but I think it's always always a great reminder I, I've taken a ton of your time um, learned so much really thankful so really encourage people to follow along with you they can follow you um your strip club at sanctuarytheclub.com. You have your weekly column at iampolly.net. And we're going to be sure to link your social handles as well in the show notes. So thank you so much for chatting with us today. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. And you now have me on this Unicorn Collaborators website ready to (laughs) purchase a shoe harness. So absolutely love that I'm still learning about things after being in the industry this long. This has been so wonderful. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. Well, I learned a lot today. You're You're just sitting here listening and absorbing. Sometimes I need to keep my mouth shut and just listen to the experts. I love it. Well, thanks for being here. Thank you to you for listening. Uh, Big shout out once again to Provacare. Folks, wherever you're at, hope you have a great one. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life. 